I'm going to invite you all to please kneel with me if you are able to. Let's go ahead and let's kneel and have a word of prayer. And then we will get into the message. Our loving Father, Lord, we are so grateful for this wonderful day. We thank you for a beautiful, holy Sabbath day of rest that we can all come together in Christian fellowship. And even in this sanctuary, we already are seeing the demonstration of how God can work through the hearts of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And Lord, we're grateful to be part of this family of God. And I pray that our hearts might not only be drawn closer to one to another, but especially close to you. And may you truly come now. Send your Holy Spirit, we ask. And may he minister to our hearts and open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of your word. For we ask all of these blessings in the worthy and in the mighty name of Jesus, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. There's a few things that I just want to draw our attention to. One of the things that's really been getting closer and closer, more impressed upon my heart, is the very purpose of the church. And the very purpose of the church we would find in the declaration of Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, where he made it very clear. Go. Go ye therefore and do what? Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, this was not merely to be done to every nation, kindred, tongue and people, but this was to be done even to every age group as well. It is in the precious little book, Great Controversy, that gives a beautiful picture of our history. And it was in the 1800s that when adults were going around place to place and they were telling people about the soon coming of Jesus, that as adults were going around and telling everyone Jesus is coming soon, according to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, when these Advent believers were giving this message, the adults suffered so much persecution in certain places in our world that after a while, the adults did not have any longer the freedom to preach as freely without persecution as young people did. And so you do know what God did? God began working through the hearts of young men and young women. These young people were actually going around and though they would swing on swings like any other child, play in the sand like any other child, and their voices sounded like children. It is in the Little Book Great Controversy, page 366, that it says that these child preachers, they were called child preachers, there were times that the spirit of God would take possession of their hearts. And it says their tone of voice and their mannerism would change. And it says that they would begin to speak with authority and would proclaim the words of John the Revelator and say, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. These children were as young as six and eight years old. You can read that again in the little book, Great Controversy. Read it right there, page 366. Beautiful account of history. And so what was God trying to communicate to yours and my heart? God was simply trying to say the proclamation of the gospel is for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and it's also for every age group. Children as young as six years old can preach the gospel. But the Bible is very, very clear that you can't preach what you don't know. And you certainly shouldn't preach 
which are not living or following yourself. And so it is that when we talk about the great commission of Christ, the great commission of Christ is very clear. Go, go and teach. That word teach actually in the Greek, it actually means to make disciples. In other words, if I were to ask you right now, how many of us are members of the church? Let me see your hands go up. How many of you are members of the seventh day Adventist church? Let me see your hands go up, right? So your hands are up, right? Now, if somebody were to say, okay, very good, you're all members. The next question is, how many of you are disciples? The question is, how many of our hands would still go up, right? Now, if you're a disciple, then that means you, under, when Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 28, let's turn your Bibles there. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 28. Go to Matthew 28. Let's just take a look at something. I want to be very clear on this. If you go to Matthew 28, because again, what I don't read is that God called us to go make members. I don't see that in the gospel commission. He said, go make disciples. Now, let's break that down a little bit. So we're in Matthew 28, right? In Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 16. Matthew 28, and we're looking at verse 16. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. All right, now watch this. In Matthew 28 and verse 16, the Bible says, then the 11, what? Aha. Uh -huh. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, who is Jesus saying this to? The 11 what? Disciples. Now, after Jesus makes it clear to the 11 disciples, all power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Then he says, go ye therefore. So the command that Christ gave was not merely to what today we would call pastors. The commandment that Christ gave was to all disciples. The 11 was all of the 12. One of them, you know, betrayed. So I want you to understand, if you're a disciple, then that means that you've been going and you've been teaching and you've been preaching and you've been preparing others to become disciples. So again, when I ask the question, how many of us are members of the church? Oh, man, a lot of hands go up. I get that. But when I say, well, how many of you are disciples? Now you got to think about it. You see, it's easy to say I'm a disciple when the, the word disciple has no real meaning. But when we understand the function of a disciple, now we begin to think a little bit harder. Am I just a member or am I a disciple? Because if I'm a disciple, I was given a command. I was given a commission. And I understand we have to make money to eat, especially in California, because it's expensive to eat. So I get it. We got to make money. I understand that. But what I'm simply saying, family, is that we all must recognize Jesus. And I, I cannot stress this enough. This is why in the month of August of this year, by the grace of God, we're going to be holding a one month gospel medical missionary training. The whole purpose of going through that gospel medical missionary training class is our desire is to really help God's people become what he always wanted us to become. I promise you, do you know some of the greatest miseries in your life is as a result that you are not busy enough in soul winning? Can I prove that? Go to the book of Proverbs 11. If you look at
the 11th chapter, I want to show you this. The, the, the most miserable life on earth, and I, I cannot repeat this enough. You see, I've lived two lives. So because I live two lives, I speak with authority. I know what I'm talking about. I'm not theorizing with you. I know what I'm saying. I live two lives. I live the life of selfishness. I have lived a life when it was all about me. Whatever I want, I do what I want. No matter who it hurts, doesn't matter who it bothers, I do what I want. I know that life. I know it very well. Lived it for many years. Oh, but Dwayne, that might hurt somebody. That might cause concerns for others. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Right now, I'm focused on me. I know that life. But guess what life I discovered? I discovered a life of selflessness. I have discovered a life where I wake up every day. Not my will. God's will be done. I've lived a life now where I can honestly have sometimes where people call or they text or they email or they say, Brother Lemon, can I talk to you? And in my feelings, I'm like, I don't want to talk to anyone right now. But I can make the mental decision to say, nevertheless, not my will. God's will be done. And I'll go to that person and say, how can I help you? I didn't feel to do that. But I would go ahead and do it. And do you know, brothers and sisters, I would start doing it. And I have discovered Proverbs 11. What does the Bible say in Proverbs 11 and verse 25? It says in Proverbs, the 11th chapter, the 25th verse, it says the liberal soul shall be made what? Fat. Meaning if you're liberal, if you're giving, you're going to be full. And it says, and he that waters, what will happen to them? They will be watered also. I'm telling you the truth. The reason why some of your lives are not feeling refreshed is because you're not busy refreshing others. I'm just trying to tell you the truth, family. I'm serious. I have found the key. I have found the secret. I have found the pearl to a happy and fulfilling life. And a happy and fulfilling life comes when you live to better the lives of other people. When you live to honor and to glorify the one who created you and woke you up this morning. When you live a life like that, you have just entered into what we would term the abundant life. This is the work that Jesus gave to every single one of us is go out and make more of you. Go make some more disciples. If you're a disciple, go make more disciples. Now, the reality is that last year, this past 12 to 14, 16 months, it put us on pause, didn't it? <laughs> you know, it kind of put us at a stop, right? And we began to discover a disease that perhaps none of us were prepared for. We didn't know about anything dealing with COVID and, you know, coronavirus and the list goes on. Yes, some of us remember maybe some years ago and we had to deal with the Mars and SARS and the MERS and all these things. But, you know, this thing caught a lot of us by storm. It did. Probably one of the greatest tragedies in my mind. Again, I'm not just talking about the world's mind. I'm dealing with my mind right now. One of the greatest tragedies of last year is to me how much evangelism for a great amount of God's people stopped. It just stopped. I mean, it absolutely froze. It froze in the so-called name of logic. And notice I said so-called. The logic was, well, there's a disease going on and the disease is going on. And therefore, we have to now close certain places and people can't go certain places anymore. One of which was the church, especially here in California. The church 
was told by the powers that be, you are not essential. Liquor stores are essential. Of course, going to the supermarkets, etc., definitely essential. But churches are not needed. Churches are not needed. Go online. And it wasn't just the world that said, okay, but it was also the church members and church leaders that said, okay. And uh, I kept thinking to myself, I said, well, I have a few thoughts going through my head. Now, I want to share with you some of those thoughts because I really want us to get the crux of why this message is being given to you today. From the launch of COVID-19 being absolutely publicized throughout our nation, the reason why you are wearing masks in a church service from the launch of this thing, I began to wonder, Lord, the gospel is essential. The gospel is needed. One of the responses was, well, the church is essential, but we can go online. So, you know, the first thing the spirit of God had me do, I went online and I looked up how many Americans do not have Internet service. Do you know that there's over 10 percent of Americans that don't even have the Internet? Now, if there's 330 million, at least, Americans, and 10% or more don't have internet, how much is that? Oh, see, you, you all just blew your own spot up. Look how many of you skipped math class. You don't, you're supposed to know the answer to that, like, boom, you know? <laughs> what is 10% of 330 million? That's 33, right? So again, up to 33 million people don't have internet. So my question to you is, how do they get the gospel? That's not a small number. That's a huge number. Of the people that had Internet access, brothers and sisters, for the most part, churches were just giving sermons. But do you know domestic abuse? Do you know how much counsel those people needed so that they could hear a message from God to say, let not your heart be troubled? And so I made a decision for myself. I said this. I, by the grace of God, realized that we're living in the time of a disease, a pandemic, and it is possible that I might get it, might get sick and might even die. God, what do you want me to do? And God said, first John 316. Let's turn there. I want you to go to the book of first John chapter three and verse 16. When I when I had to ask God as an individual, because I'm accountable for myself, I had to ask the Lord, Father. People are going to get sick and die. What do you want me to do? First John 3 and verse 16. Here was God's answer to me. And I believe it's God's answer to all Christians, especially ministers. First John 3 and verse 16. We love to tell the story about Jesus, don't we? We love to hear about how he died that we might be saved. Well, let me go ahead and show you this. In first John 3 and verse 16, here's what the Bible says. It says in first John 3 and verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God because he did something for us. What did God do for us? He laid down his life for us. But look at how the verse closes. And we ought to do something else. What should we do? We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, I understood a long time ago, way before COVID, that every day I go out of my doors, I'm risking my life. Because I live in a world where the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the status quo. 
I live in a world today that if I call certain sins out by their right names, I might get beat up. I might get assaulted. Somebody might take a pistol and justifiably pull the trigger. And they might have a court system that might even back them up. Every single day that we go out of our doors, you're already risking your life. And yes, I'm not saying that COVID is like anything else. I'm, I, I acknowledge it was a special disease, but we also had special protection. We had special promises. God made it very clear. If you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, God says, I will put none of the diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. Exodus 15, 26. When I read that promise, I said, Father, I'm going to put my mask on. I'll wash my hands because I already washed my hands. I washed my hands way before I ever heard about COVID. And, you know, you want me to distance from you? Though the logic doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I'll do it anyhow. You want me to stay six feet away? I'll do my best to stay six feet away. That was probably one of the most violated rules and is one of the most violated rules from COVID to date. You know, I just came out of an airport yesterday. <laughs> and, you know, nobody was six feet apart on the escalator. Nobody's six feet apart inside of the thing. I mean, you know, there's but so much you can do. But here's my point. I followed these simple rules that they were asking because they didn't. They, these rules didn't cause me to break the commandments of God. You want me to put a mask on? I'll put a mask on. You want me to wash my hands? Sure, no problem. I believe in washing my hands. You want me to distance from people? Well, I like being close to folks. But in this case, fine, I'll distance. But I'm going. I'm going to go. And for this entire COVID-19, whole pandemic, still never being vaccinated to date, God has preserved me from this disease. In the midst of traveling, in the midst of being around lots and lots of people, because I said, Lord, what's the point of going to church? What's the point of being a Christian? What's the point of all of this if I don't believe your promises? If you promised it, then I'm going to trust you. I want to make sure I'm never being foolish, but I wasn't being foolish. I followed the guidelines as predict, as they said. And I went. And to date, thank the Lord Jesus Christ. I have not been sick. And a lot of hearts have come to Jesus. I'm not just dealing with helping the Advent band. I'm talking about a lot of people that are not Seventh-day Adventists. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you is this is our mission. This is what we are called to do. And just because our lives may be at risk in doing it, I don't read anything in the Bible that says, oh, because your life is at risk, then stop doing it. God has called us to do it. If a physician can wake up every morning to go save lives, so should the minister. I'm glad I'm hearing amen. Seriously, because I was going to ask, can you say amen to that? I'm serious. If a physician can get up every day and risk his life in the midst of a pandemic, to help save people, why not the minister? If a bus driver can get up every day and risk his life having all those people come on the bus, knowing some people are going to take their masks off, hello, hey, what's going on real quick? The bus driver looks at him, oh. The bus driver, they're risking their lives every day. Two reasons, get their paycheck, help people. The doctor risks his life every day, why? Get his paycheck, help people. And you can go through the list, the Uber drivers, some of the restaurant folks, a lot of people stayed open. A lot of people still surrounded themselves around people with all the risks involved. The CDC already told us these masks we're wearing don't even really protect us. 
they just keep our droplets from going out. But if people's droplets come out, it's not like your mask, these non-N95 masks can keep those particles from getting into it. We're all risking ourselves. The question is, is it worth it? That's, that's the real question. All right, I'm going to risk myself. Is it worth it? And if you have a love for people, if you have a love for souls, it should be worth it. It should be worth it. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I've never seen such a great need for us to be out in the field giving the gospel. And I'm, I, I cannot stress this enough, brothers and sisters. I have never been so convinced when I watched everything from the elections to the news to social media and everything, I said to myself, if ever the world is in need of the gospel, it is right now. And I'm not talking about any foul gospel. I'm talking about the everlasting gospel. The gospel that will usher in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to commission all the young folks as well as the adults. And we need to work together and by the grace of God, finish the work that God has given us to do. The reason why I say this is because I don't know if you noticed this. Have you noticed the conditioning that's been going on just over the past year? I will give you an example. And this is why I've never been so concerned in the time in which we're living in. Never been so concerned. One man with a degree and enough notoriety, enough popular popularity, one man became the voice of reason over almost a whole lot of other people. What am I talking about? Well, you know, right now we're having discussions on, uh, you know, well, if you're vaccinated, you can have a lot of freedoms where the non-vaccinated can. Um, right now, the president of our own country has already made it stated that the non-vaccinated will suffer consequences or penalties. And, and he's not specifying what that is. And I'm not here to say that the, the vaccine has anything to do with the mark of the beast. I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I want to make that clear. I don't believe that. Um, but I do believe that a lot of stuff that happened over the past year has kind of paved the way for a lot of what Daniel and Revelation has said to come to pass very quickly. And here's the thing. I watch these people called white coat doctors. I've talked with people over at the clinic not far from us who have said when people had COVID, we gave them ivermectin, we gave them this, and they got well in a couple of days. I mean, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of testimonies. But it was one man that if he said, go right, the majority of the media agreed with him and they went right. And if he said go left, the majority of the media went left and a lot of people went left. And I began to look at the mindset of the average American today, the average American. And the mindset of the average American was the man with the degree, the man with the highest popularity and the man who has the greatest favoritism is the man that we're going to listen to. And that began to concern me, that mindset, why? We are told this statement in inspiration. The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. It says the mark of the beast will be urged upon us. And then it says those who are the people who's going to get the mark of the beast. It says those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed 
to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threat, and imprisonment and death. That mindset is what I see that's sweeping our country right now. If a few say do this and have a great majority of media and everybody else on their side, it seems the majority of the world will say, well, they told us to do it, so let's go do it. Even if it doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. And we know that this is a step-by-step yielding that's preparing the way for greater yielding at a later time in Earth's history. This should concern the people of God. This should concern us because that's a society that we were called to witness to and to minister to. And that's why I was grateful that this article, when it came out just a few days ago, how many of you saw this one? Anybody see this? You know, it's all right to look at the news if you're looking for information that connects us back to heavenly principles. Um, when, when California, when they, they settled the lawsuit, a couple of ministers began to say, you cannot control our worship. You know, if you remember in Southern California, you see us Northern Californians, I looked at my sisters up here singing with their masks on. And I said, well, praise the Lord, because, you know, in Southern California, you couldn't even sing, even with a mask on. They literally prohibited singing. They began to tell many of the churches, you can't sing even though you have a mask. And so it was literally affecting our worship. Because singing is a part of religious liberty, it's a part of our religious liberty, our religious expression. And it was kind of weird how we were just buckling and yielding to these demands, though they had very, very little rationale. And so it was that this ended up coming out. All, I like this, praise the Lord. All California churches can now hold worship services without restrictions as a result of the settlement. California Governor Gavin Newsom was the first governor to have a permanent injunction levied against him on behalf of houses of worship. Once entered by the district court, the settlement will be the first statewide permanent injunction in the U.S. against COVID restriction on churches and houses of worship. You should say amen to that. The whole point is, is that even in a crisis, we have to be very careful what we allow the state to tell us as a church. We have to be very careful. And there was a lot of loose behavior that took place. And what was it doing? It was hindering our ability to do the very thing Jesus told us to do. Go and make more disciples. And so now, praise the Lord, we are seeing cases going down. We're seeing deaths going down and we're seeing restrictions being uplifted. And I think a lot of us are probably super ready to go back to business as usual. I get it. But my brothers and sisters, the business, even if it wasn't our usual, that we need to plead with God, Lord, give me a heart that is willing to do this, is Jesus says, now go ye therefore and go make disciples. The whole purpose of God is God says, I want to light the earth up with my glory. Jesus wants to wrap this thing up and take us home. And I'm just telling you, family, again, you need to plead with God. Lord, help me to get out of my self-consumed life. I go to work. I make money. I have bills. I budget and I make my plans for my future of what I want to accomplish. And it's like not even once are we thinking about who can you use me? 
to help make known the most liberating, powerful truth that could ever be made known. If you don't have that, God knows how to work with that. Remember, God knows how to work with hot and cold hearts. The only hearts Jesus can't work with well are the hearts that are lukewarm. They, they act like one thing while the truth is they are another. God says that's the one that will cause him to remove our names right from out of his mouth. And so we need to plead with God. Lord, help me in my heart to become more caring, to become more interested in others. How do you do that? Sometimes it's just act on what you know and not what you feel. If somebody calls you and says, hey, listen, we're going to go and give out tracks next week. Can you come? Everything in your mind says, I don't want to do that. But instead, you just say, you know what? But it's right. Yep, I'll go. And then when you go, boom, lo and behold, you feel good after you did it. Faith is ours to exercise. Joyful feeling and the blessing is God's to give to us. You understand that? Always remember that. Faith is yours and mine to exercise. The joyful feeling and the blessing is God's to give to us. The way it works in the world is feel it first, do it second. That's called worldliness. Feel it first, do it second. If I don't feel it, I'm not doing it. If I feel it, I'll do it. That is worldliness. How do I know Christianity? Christianity always says, if it's the right thing to do, though I don't feel it, I will do it. And I will trust that God will give me good feelings for it at a later time. That's Christianity. I know it's the right thing to do. I don't feel this right now, but I know it's right. I will act on what I know, though I don't feel it. And I will trust God will give me good feelings for it at a later time. Behold, real biblical Christianity. That's Christianity. And so my question is this. How many of us understanding the times in which we're living? It's, it's getting rough. It's going to get rougher. Another COVID will come. Okay, guaranteed. It might be called something else or whatever, but according to the prophetic landscape, another crisis is coming. God is, give, God is giving, and I knew God was going to do it, God is going to give us a window of reprieve. He's going to give us that window where it's like, all right, let's see what you do now. He's going to give it to us. My prayer is that we don't allow ourselves to just go back into a very comfortable sleep but that we stay wide awake. So here's my first appeal in the first phase of our message. How many of us, if you know, Lord, I haven't really been your disciple. I have not really been about winning souls, bringing people closer to Jesus, but because of the things that I have now seen, according to your word, I am willing, as you open the door again, I am willing to be a participant in sharing in whatever way I can the everlasting gospel with those who know it not. If you are counted amongst that class, let me see your hands go up. If that's you, I just want to see real quick. If you're willing to say, now that I see, I am willing to do more for the furthering of the gospel. All right. Now, some hands did not go up. You are in my prayers. Listen, family, you can reject. Listen, who, I don't know how many of you are investors in this room. If you are an investor, if you keep investing in something and you keep seeing that it doesn't give you a return on your investment, what do you eventually do with that investment? You close it. You say, I'm closing this. This thing's not working. It's not giving me what I, what I expected, right? God is an investor. Every day you wake up, he invests the breath of life. Every day you and I wake up, he invests a sound mind and a sound body. Every day you wake up, God is investing in you. 
he definitely is, is looking for a return on his investment. That return that God wants is a life that is surrendered to him and his will. And like we see almost every day of which I got reports even just now. I got reports just now. While you are, I assure you, I was not ignoring anybody before the sermon spoke, but I was talking to someone who is right on the brink of death. I was talking with his daughter. And I was like, how is he doing? Oh, his body's starting to see the skeleton of his ribs and so on. Cancer. Eating him alive. And I said, how is his courage? And so I'm literally counseling before I'm coming up here to preach. So I just want you to know I wasn't ignoring anybody or anything. I was just dealing with the crisis real quick. And as it is, I'm going to it. I'm just like, OK, so where's his heart? Where's the, and OK, I said, listen, later on today, let's make sure we get on the phone. I said, we need to talk because we need to know, are we preparing for life? Or are we preparing for death? Either way, we need to be prepared. So that's the steps we're going to take. But my point is very simple. There comes a time in all of yours in my life that sooner or later, God is going to say, I've been investing and I'm looking for a return on my investment. And if we keep rejecting the appeals, please do not blame God nor be mad at God. If God decides one day to demonstrate that he is starting to withdraw from the account and say, we have now reached a place that I can see this is probably not the best investment. It's a big God forbid, but it is real. But a lot of you did raise your hands. Now, for those of you who raised your hands, I want you to understand. First things first. Now that you are ready to go into the field, you're ready to do great gospel work. There's something that I want you to notice. One of the things that I'm doing right now in my Bible study life, just to give you an idea, just letting you in on my business a little bit, is uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about in my study life is I'm studying specific characters in scripture. Like I'm studying Jeremiah and I'm studying Ezekiel, and I'm studying Isaiah. I'm not so much just studying their books. I've done that before, but I'm studying the person. I'm kind of like studying their characters, like where their mind was, you know, how did they grow up? What were their influences in their lives? What were their mother and their father like, if the Bible reveals anything about it? You know, what were their grandparents like? What were some of their, you know, generational curses that came on their lives? And, you know, I'm just studying the characters of different people in scripture. Very, very exciting study. The Bible is so far from a boring book. I'm just telling you, as a guy who once upon a time couldn't even read the Bible and certainly didn't want to. I'm just telling you, the Bible is a very inexhaustible book. There's so many treasures in it. It is just amazing. Isaiah. There were some things about Isaiah's character that I thought was deep. Now, for this, I would love some participation, meaning I'm going to put a point up. And then I'm going to ask someone to read it for us. So real quick, let me see. I probably am going to have about maybe four or five scriptures come up. So and they're all going to be from the book of Isaiah. So just turn your Bibles to Isaiah right now. But um, I need about four or five readers who would be so kind and especially my young brothers and sisters. And again, you could be as young as six. You already talked about that. You could be as young as six years old. Not a problem. But my question is, uh, how many of us can be willing to read? Let me see your hands go up. Because I want to identify you. Ooh, so we got a good, we got a good army right here to my left. And then we got a small little army here to my right. All right. So then I think we can cover a lot just from this front group. So here we go. I'm going to do it like this. From my left, whoever of you raised your hand, which was a few of you, we're just going to go down and one person reads, then the next person, then the next. Okay. 
Let's go ahead and let's notice some things about Isaiah. These are some things about the prophet Isaiah that really stuck out as I began to study a little bit about him and his life. The first one is Isaiah 1 and verse 1. So let's go ahead and let's notice what the Bible says here. Remember, you're already in Isaiah, so hopefully you can find it fairly quickly, even though it's a lot of chapters. Isaiah 1 and verse 1, nice and loud. Go ahead and read. Amen. Now notice, the what of Isaiah? How did the verse start? The what of Isaiah? The vision of Isaiah. So what does that tell us? He received visions from God, and therefore Isaiah was what? He was a prophet. We're just learning some things about this man, Isaiah. One thing we know about Isaiah for sure is he received visions from God, which means he was a prophet. Would we agree with that? Amen? Good. Next reader, Isaiah 1 and verse 18. What else do we learn about Isaiah? That's a demonstration of the grace of God, isn't it? That's a demonstration because he says, though your sins be like this, God says, I'm still going to do this with it. That's called grace. When we are wholly deserving of judgment, but instead God is willing to pardon us and be merciful. That is literally a demonstration of grace. So even though Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah was acquainted with God's grace. Would you agree with that? He was acquainted with it because God gave him a message of grace. Anytime, if you look up the word grace, like in Hebrew or Greek, it's called unmerited favor, meaning you didn't do anything to deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you anyhow, even though you don't deserve this because I love you. That is God's grace. Okay. That's an example of God's grace. So Isaiah was acquainted with God's grace. He knew about God's grace. So away with these thoughts that grace was a New Testament thing, right? Don't ever let anybody tell you that grace is not just a New Testament thing. It was in the Old Testament. Even Noah found grace in the eyes of God, according to Genesis 6. So grace is in the Old Testament, too. Let's learn something else about Isaiah. Isaiah 2, 1 to 4. Next reader. So notice, did Isaiah understand well last day events? Sure enough, he understood clearly last day events. He was just given that prophecy, which was applying to the latter days, the last days. So notice Isaiah. He received visions. He was a prophet prophet of God, very special servant of the Most High. He also was acquainted with God's grace very well. He also understood last day events. He was a student and a proclaimer of Bible prophecy. How about this one? Isaiah 5 and verse 1. Our next reader can take that one. What else do we learn about Isaiah in Isaiah 5 and verse 1? So notice Isaiah is going to do what? What did it say Isaiah was going to do? He was going to sing. He, he, Isaiah was definitely a man who offered praise and worship to God. Isaiah is extremely religious. I mean, do we see this? I mean, he's extremely religious. He's a prophet. He's acquainted with God's grace. He is very aware and understands last day events. And he's a man of worship. Not only that, but what else do we learn about Isaiah? Our next reader, Isaiah 1 four through eight. All right. Thank you. So I want you to notice this. Here's some things we learned about our brother Isaiah. In our study of our brother Isaiah, we learned, number one, he was a prophet. Number two, he was thoroughly acquainted with God's grace. He definitely understood last day events. He was a man of personal praise and worship. And he also, at times, 
responded to the voice of God in even rebuking others, even without fear. Isaiah sounds very much like a man of God. Wouldn't we agree? All right. Now let's go to Isaiah 6. This one we will read together. In Isaiah 6, I'll do verse 1, you'll do verse 2, I'll do 3, you'll do 4. And what we'll do is with Isaiah 6, we'll take it all the way down unto verse 8. Verse 8. I'll read verse 1, you'll read verse 2, I'll do 3, you'll do 4, and we'll take it all the way down to verse 8. In Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1, here's what the Bible says. It says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. I'll read verse 3. And one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Amen. Now, in verse 9, we see God saying, Okay, go. And then God sends him. But there's some lessons. We just read portions of Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 5, and we got an idea of the condition of our brother Isaiah, right? We saw that Isaiah's basically a man of God. Like, you know, you more than likely, if the, if the term man of God is used, then this definitely would be pretty much the description. Somebody who praises and worships God, somebody who evidently speaks God's messages, even if it requires rebuking when necessary. Somebody who is evidently led by God. They are a prophet. They understand God's grace. They're very acquainted with Bible prophecy. They understand the word. We would definitely say, oh, yeah, man, Isaiah is a man of God. Amen. But what did we see in Isaiah six that should at least be maybe surprising about our brother Isaiah? In the midst of him doing all of this, what did God say in Isaiah 6 from those verses we just read that indicates something else about Isaiah? What did you see? Say again. Unclean lips, right? So even though Isaiah's doing all of these things like we're seeing on the screen here, even though these things are attributed to Isaiah's character, Yet we see very clearly that when we look at Isaiah 6, we see in verse 5, he recognizes he's a man of unclean lips. And not only that, but God said something very powerful in verse 7 to Isaiah. What did God tell Isaiah in verse 7? Thy something be something. He makes it very clear. He says in verse 7, your iniquity is taken away and your sins are purged. So what did Isaiah still have on his record, even though he was a prophet, acquainted with God's grace, understood well last day events, definitely offered praise and worship to God, and even gave rebuke to sinners? What was one of the challenges with our brother Isaiah? He still had sin upon his own life that he did not recognize until he saw the vision of God sitting in the temple. 
until he got a right understanding of the character. Even though he was a massive servant of the Lord, Isaiah could not see the blind spot that he was suffering. And I want you to notice that Isaiah was doing ministry, but it was very early. You see, Isaiah has up to 66 chapters. But it's only by the time we get to the sixth chapter that God wakes Isaiah up so that he can do more effective ministry. You and I have been in the church for a few months or a few years. We definitely just from last year can see very clearly, Lord, I need to wake up. I need to be more about your business than I have been. A lot of people died last year. Probably a lot went into Christless graves. The world is being straight up duped. It is being tricked and set up for the traps of the devil because there's no way. A mark of the beast, it doesn't even matter what you believe it is. It's just the Bible is very clear. The mark of the beast is coming. And there has to be a means of setting people up for it. And one of the chief means is get the people to yield whether it makes sense or not. Train the minds of the people to just follow suit. Keep your mouth shut. Remember, the Bible is very clear. You can get the mark of the beast in your forehead, believing it, or with your hand, meaning just cooperate and do everything we say. The devil doesn't care if you believe or not, as long as you do whatever he says. And so the Bible is very clear. We're watching the world being conditioned. For the sake of freedom, I'll give up my safeties. I'll give up my securities. I'll give up whatever I need to give up, give up so that I can have what I need. The world is going in this direction. And if God does not raise up some sentinels to help wake the sleeping people up. It's like Jesus said, when the son of man comes, will I even find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 8. And so we see. All right, Lord, I need to be more about your business. I've been selfish. I've been consumed with myself. I've been doing my own thing, etc. And Lord, I see that I must be about your work. So many of us said, all right, Lord, I'll be about your work. God says, great. But first things first, before you go. God says, I need you to see something about one of my children. Isaiah looked like a good Christian. Based on this description right here. Isaiah looked like a real man of God. But the problem is that Isaiah suffered from a plague spot. And the question is, are you suffering from the same plague spots? Here's what it says about our brother. As the prophet Isaiah, and you always find this in scriptures, always the same thing. As the prophet Isaiah beheld the glory of the Lord, he was amazed. And overwhelmed with a sense of his own weakness and unworthiness, he cried, woe is me. I believe with all my heart the greatest reason why many of us are so numb in the church is because we have yet to really see God for ourselves. Isaiah finally saw God for himself. It was a very personal comprehension. He saw the glory of God. And then it says this next. It says, Isaiah had denounced the sin of others. But now he sees himself exposed to the same condemnation he had pronounced upon them. He had been satisfied. Look at this. He's been satisfied with what? A cold, what else? Lifeless ceremony in his worship of God. Let's talk about that. 
Let's just let's talk about that. I, I really believe in keeping it real. I think keeping it real is a very important thing to do in such a time as this in Earth's history. How much of you, your religion has become cold and lifeless? How many of you, when you sing a song, it means absolutely nothing to you? Like you sing a song like, all to Jesus, I surrender all to him. It's like if you look at the face, you can already see they're planning for what they're going to do after sunset. It's like if you look carefully at their face, you can be like, man, you're thinking about what you're doing after sunset. In other words, you, you could see they're probably really not into this song right now. Their mind looks like it's someplace else. Have you gotten to a place that your religion has become cold and lifeless? You do what you do. You show up every Sabbath, but the Sabbath is so not on your mind. You know, sunset Friday night, sunset Friday night comes and you're like, all right, it's the Sabbath, you know, a bunch of do's and don'ts and whatnot. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not really like rejoicing to spend time with God. That's like not on my heart right now. I go around, I hang out with my friends, and because we're all professive Christians, and because we all are maybe singing songs and focus more on the melody and the rhythm and the harmony, rather than focusing on the words that are drawing me closer to God, could that be where a lot of our religion has become? My religion is cold. My religion is lifeless. Jesus is not the joy of the center of my thoughts. We go out in nature and we find every reason to try to act a little bit more like the world, but it's okay because we're all professed Christians. So because we're all professed Christians, somehow this, this makes it a little bit more Sabbath keeping, even though not one of us really has the thoughts of Jesus upon our lips. Has your religion become cold? Has it become lifeless? You do go to church. You turn off the programs, even though it's playing in your mind, because you say it's Sabbath now, so I can't watch that. But when the sunset is over, I'm so going back to that. So right now, I won't play it, play it. I'll just play it in my imagination until the sun sets, and then I'll play it for real on my radio, on my TV, or whatever else, on my phone, or anything else. Has your religion become cold and lifeless? You're already thinking about the business transactions. You got a big check coming through. It's going to accomplish great things. You can't wait for, to close the deal. So you go ahead on the Sabbath day. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. But you know, you're still calculating the numbers in your head. You're still excited about the deal you're going to close. You're excited about the next project that is coming up because it's going to do some good things for you, your family and others. But your mind is not on the creator. Behold Isaiah. He did a lot of stuff. He's a prophet, acquainted with the grace of God. He understands a whole bunch of stuff. But at the end of the day, Isaiah's worship became lifeless and ceremonial. I see it happen all the time. I see it happen all the time. Constipation kicks in when you start worship. All of a sudden, you got to go to the bathroom. It takes a billion years for you to come out of the bathroom. I get it, family. I, I get it. I'm just saying, I understand. We have lost our interest. And that's why so many people leave the church, because after a while, that gets tired. I'm just telling you, it gets tired. You're not going to do that forever. 
After a while, it gets to, if something dynamic does not change, you are going to drop the bomb. You're going to go ahead and say, mom and dad, friend, family, husband, wife, son, daughter, mom. You, somebody's going to say, I don't want to do this anymore. Because what's the point of faking? And this world, the world through media, especially, is saying, do you. Do what thou wilt. Follow your heart. Whatever you're feeling, that's the truth. So truth is no longer thy word is truth. Truth is no longer Jesus who said I am the truth. Truth is whatever you feel, that's the truth. That is postmodernism at its highest level. There is no longer absolute truth. It's just your truth. And that's what you keep hearing over and over again. Everybody who's coming out gay, transgender and stuff and stuff. What are, they, what are the two words they keep using? My truth. I have, to, I have to stand by my truth. So there's no longer God who is truth. There's no longer the Bible that is truth. It's now you and I. We now are the source of truth. You see, Satan has succeeded. That's what he started in the garden. Satan said, now, did God say you're going to die if you eat this? He says, you're not going to die. He says, you know what's going to happen? In your disobedience, you're actually going to become like God. In disobedience, you're going to be God. Because what was Satan's desire? Satan's desire was, I will be God. So once God said, all right, you out, and then Satan gets kicked out, Satan says, no problem. Like many parents, I will fulfill my failed dreams through my children. Isn't that what, think about that. That's what a lot of parents do. If parents haven't accomplished it themselves, then what do we do? We put the pressure on our children. You must experience the success I never experienced. And somehow we as parents feel like that's our redemption. Right? That comes from the mind of Satan. Satan says, look, I did not succeed. I tried to beat God and he beat me down and kicked me out. I wanted to be God. So guess what I'm going to do, God? I'm going to go to your own children and I'm going to get them to fulfill my dream. I'm going to convince them that in disobedience, they can become God. And boy, are we living that today because now we got people saying my truth. We are now the authors of truth. That is blasphemy. What truth you got? Especially some 12-year-old, 16-year-old kid. You ain't even lived life yet. And you're talking about you got a truth now? How'd you create that? We're being pimped and played by that old serpent called the devil and Satan. And we don't even see it. And what God is trying to do is get some truth, real truth. To shake up the mind and wake us up and help us to understand not very different from my man, Isaiah. You're not very different from my son. And the same way that Isaiah woke up is the same way that anybody will wake up. You got to take your eyes off of men. And you got to fix your eyes on the only one that has resurrection power. The one who can wake up the dead. Because a lot of us got dead men's bones inside of our hearts. We're corrupt to the core. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And the word wicked means incurable. And the way that God woke up Isaiah is God said, Isaiah, you need to get a clearer picture of who I am. Let's finish this writing here. Uh, it says he had not known this until the vision was given him of the Lord. 
It says, how little now appeared his wisdom and talents as he looked upon the sacredness, sacredness and majesty of the sanctuary. His view of himself might be expressed in the language of the Apostle Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? What I've realized is our young people today need less instruction and more revelation. It's never been so clear to me. The young people of today are some of the most hard-headed, stubborn, rebellious people. Like, seriously, you could tell them a thousand things and they'll just be like, uh-huh, right? You could, you could show them, like, you know you're wrong, right? Yeah, I know I'm wrong. You know you, you know what you're doing is going to kill you, right? Yeah, I know, I know. You, you understand that that's going to Yep, yep. I, I, yeah, I see it. I see it. So you're going to stop doing it? Yeah, I'll stop. I'll stop. And then, like, two minutes later, they're doing it. It's just a different generation. <laughs> Seriously, it's like I wish reason would just solve the problem, but reason doesn't solve the problem. It's like supernatural power must take place. It's a revelation of Christ. It's never been clearer to me. It's like, Lord, it's a revelation of Christ. We need to see, we need to see Jesus and we need to see his power in such an attractive way that it kind of exposed. You know how when you're in darkness, you can't see, but when, when you're in light, you can see the darkness better. Like we need more of the light of Christ. The more we see him is the more we understand and comprehend darkness better. And so what Jesus wants to do is he wants to give a revelation of himself. That's why we read in that precious little book, Ministry of Healing, page 143, it says, the, the, the world needs now what it needed 2,000 years ago, a revelation of Christ. Like, I'm serious as a heart attack. It's like, I've never seen it so clear. It's like, man, if we just keep talking rules and regulations to our young people, you will get probably a microscopic one step further. And that's it. You're not going to accomplish much. It's not that rules and regulations are not needed. It's just that it doesn't work with a heart that's not regenerated. It doesn't work with a heart that, that can't appreciate the author of the instruction. Are you following that? It's like, in other words, if somebody comes to you and says, you really should reconsider the job that you have and start another one. If a stranger came to you and said to you, you, you know, let's say you're working your job or your business and somebody just comes to you and says, listen, you really need to stop that job you're doing and look to another job. Correct me if I'm wrong. Probably one of the first questions are, um, who are you? You know, like, like, who are you? Like, who are you to come to me and tell me this, that and the other? You know, it's like that's probably the first thing that's going to come to our minds is who are you to even tell me this? Right. But what happens if it's somebody that you absolutely trust? So out in your life and in your mind that you value their opinions you value their thoughts and that person comes to you they have convinced you that you are looking out for my good tell me if i'm right or wrong when that person comes to you and says you should really reconsider the career you're doing and consider something else wouldn't you put a lot more stock in what they say what made the difference relationship that's it it's relationship once the relationship is established and i am convinced you care about me. You're looking out for me. I know that you're not here to harm me. You're here to bless me and you're here to help me. And you know some things I don't know. And when you say, hey, I got some wisdom I want to impart to you, you're actually going to be like, talk to me because you have earned my trust. I've let you in the chambers of my mind. Say what you got to say. Now you can say thou shalt and thou shalt not because now the person's mind is open to receive it better because they understand who's talking. 
The reason why we have so many young people that you can say no jewelry, they're well jewelry. No sex, they'll go ahead and have sex. You say here's proper principles on courtship, they'll violate it anyhow. Here's the right way to eat, drink, and dress. Oh, we'll do it. Anyhow. The reason why is because it's Greek to them. You're speaking about a guy who said what to do and not to do that they don't know and they don't appreciate and they definitely don't love. And you don't change your life for people you don't know and you don't appreciate and you don't love. Am I right or am I wrong? Am I, am I just crazy or am I right or wrong? It's the truth. That's the truth. But when you know the person, when you understand them, etc., now it makes a big difference. So here's the point, family. Here's what God says. God says our hearts are deceitful. Above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And again, the word wicked in the Hebrew means incurable. That's God's description of our hearts. This is the truth. And what God is trying to do is to convince us of this truth. Don't trust this. But there is something he wants us to trust. Let's go to Jeremiah 17. Let's find out what he wants us to trust. I want you to see it for yourself. The whole work of the gospel is God trying to convince men of two facts. One is this truth. Because how many times do we make decisions based on how we feel? Like I said earlier, we, we make decisions based on our hearts, our minds. I think it's right. So it's right. Nobody could tell me otherwise until life experience itself helps me see. And I, I'm sorry, but I'm here to tell you experience is not the best teacher. It is someone else's. Back in the days, growing up in New York City, watching that rail, watching that train go by every time I entered the subway and I'd always hear that buzz. Bzzz, and I'm like, Dad, I said, what's that buzzing sound? He said, oh, that's the third rail. And I was like, the third rail? What's that? He said, that's the electricity. He said, that thing runs the electricity that makes the trains go. And, da, da, da. and I was like, really? I said, man. And of course, being curious, little Dwayne, I was like, you know, I'd love to touch that thing. And dad was like, boy, he says, you like fried chicken, don't you? Yep. I like fried chicken a lot. He says, if you touch that, you will become fried chicken. And I was just like, really? He's like, oh, Dwayne, is so much currents. Because I didn't know anything about it. So much currents running through this thing. It'll cook you alive and all this stuff. So I was like, all right, I'll stay away from it. One day I got older. I'm in the subway all by myself. And I'm looking at the third rail. <laughs> and I'm just like, Bzzz. and, you know, and you see no train coming on either side. Everything inside of you is like, and of course, Satan's voice is there. Go ahead, go ahead, just, just try it. So I'm ready to be like. And just go there like, ha, and then just, you know, fly back up. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. But God was so gracious that he allowed me to learn something in the news shortly after that day of temptation. I ended up checking out the news and saw man dies from touching the third rail. And he thought, they went through the whole story, friends. Hey, man, I'm going to touch it. No, you're not. I dare you. Okay, you dare me? I'm going to do it. And he goes and he tries to touch it. And he thought, now, I can't explain it fully, but you know, we have like electrical currents kind of, anyhow, I'm not going to go there. Scientifically speaking, the bottom line is, is that when he, he thought he could do this, ha, what he didn't realize is the way our bodies were made up is that once he touched it, it was like something like grabbed his hand and kept him there. In other words, it was something where he couldn't pull away. And so he touched it. And, and I mean, that electricity just shot through him, cooked him alive right there. Now, the point is very simple. What's my point? My point is we can either 
Learn by experience that the third rail will kill you. Or you can learn from somebody else's experience. I am thankful that I stand here before you today very much alive, having never touched the third rail because I learned from somebody else's experience. And the Bible says in Romans 15 and verse 4, that's why the scriptures were written. They were written aforetime for our learning. You don't have to do everything that the scripture says not to do to find out, oh, should I really do it? God says, that's why I wrote it. So you can learn what other people went through. So here it is. God is trying to convince us our hearts are deceitful. But you're in Jeremiah 17. Now look at verse 7. What does the Bible say in Jeremiah 17, 7? The Bible says very clearly that we should do something. What is it that we should do? Jeremiah 17 and verse 7. And the text says, Blessed is the man that does what? Trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. God is trying to convince us of two things that are game changers for life. One is to be convinced our hearts are deceitful and I can't trust it. And that God is righteous and we should trust him in everything. If God could get those two points across to yours in my mind, it's a game changer. It changes everything about your life. It'll change everything about my life. And so what God is trying to do right now is to get us to see, I cannot trust myself. I must put my trust in him. But the only way this works is we need to get to know him. Why? Because inspiration says no man can of himself understand his errors. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It says the lips may express a poverty of soul that the heart does not acknowledge. While speaking to God of poverty of spirit, the heart may be swelling with the conceit of its own superior humility and exalted righteousness. Isn't that terrible? Like even when we're saying, nah, I'm a humble, nah, I'm not worthy. Our minds are saying, yes, I am. You know, somebody gives you money, somebody gives you a gift. We feel like the appropriate response is, oh, no, no, please don't give it to me. Where the mind is like, man, give me that money. Give me it. I need that money right now. Right? That's why it, don't even waste your time doing that. It's like if somebody comes to me, Brother Lemon, I want to give you this or whatever. I'm just going to be like, thank you, brother. I needed that. That's what I'm going to do. Because what's the what? Oh, no, I, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. You know, I have a good friend of mine, good buddy. I mean, he's, he's probably one of my, like, he's almost there to earn the term best friend. And I remember one time I wrote a check to him. I wanted to support him and his family because he was a full-time missionary. I wrote a check out. Lord bless me with some good funds. And I was just like, hey, man, I want to give this to you. <laughs> it's just funny just remembering it. And he was just like, nah, man, nah, I can't take it. I can't take it. And I was just, <laughs> and I knew that this was like some, you know, very pseudo humility stuff, like just not true humility. And so I'm like, bro, take the check. I said, I care about you guys. I, I want to help your family, you know, because he would go out. He literally went out in the woods and chopped trees and tried to sell wood to help take care of his family. And I knew he was hurting. And I'm like, I am your friend. There's no way I'm going to know that you're going through that. And I'm not going to write a check to you. So I wrote a check out. It's a good amount of money. And I said, here, take it. Nah, man. I said, look, if you don't take it in five seconds, I'm taking it back and you will never get it. Five, four, three. He was like, no, nah, man. Okay, okay, okay. And then he just took it. I never had such a good laugh in my life. I mean, you know, because I'm just like, bro, take the check. Take the check. 
what I'm simply saying is, you know, we 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 need to understand. Sometimes we we give these demonstrations of ourselves that's not the true us, you know. And and again, this is how deceitful the heart can be. You follow that? So God is trying to help us understand our hearts are deceitful. We, we say all sorts of stuff when we meet another. I don't do that anymore. By the great, I am WYSIWYG. WYSIWYG. If you take each letter of that WYSIWYG, it stands for what you see is what you get. That's Dwayne Lemon. I am so WYSIWYG. It's like what you see is what you get. This is me. This is who I am. Now, there's certain things about my character that I'm like, Lord, you know, I know you're still working on me. So I'm not going to let that be seen because that would probably discourage somebody. All right. I'm still a work in progress. But I, I'm not going to be fake around God's people. I, I'm not seeing the benefit of that either. So I'm trying to keep it balanced. And what you see truly is what you get. This is me. This is who I am. All right. Now, God goes on to say, in one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. How? We must behold Christ. It's the only way. The only way I can get the right understanding of my true self, my true condition, it says we must behold Christ. It is ignorance of him that makes men so uplifted in their righteousness. When we contemplate his purity and excellence, look at this. God is literally telling us this is what you look for. When you study about Jesus, God says, I want you to look for this. Look for his purity. Look for his excellence. We shall see our own weakness and poverty and defects as they really are. We shall see ourselves lost and hopeless, clad in garments of self-righteousness like every other sinner. We shall see that if we are ever saved, it will not be through our own goodness, but through God's infinite grace. God says, study the character of Christ. Study this. I'm going to bring it to a close. Watch this. You remember in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus talked about, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you something. What do you want to give us? Rest, right? Look at this. This is what Jesus wants us to learn about him more than anything else, family. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What does he want us to learn? For I am meek and lowly in heart. And that's how you'll find rest for your souls. Your study life from this day forward, by the grace of God, study the meekness and lowliness of Christ. Whenever you're studying about Jesus every day, what you're looking for above and beyond anything, Lord, what represents your meekness in this story? What represents your lowliness in this story? The more that you study the meekness and lowliness of God, by beholding that, it draws us closer and closer to his heart. It draws us closer and closer to his heart. Whenever you think about this, I want you to do me a favor. Write these down. I want to let you go. I want you to write this down. To, I, I, what I did here is I gave specifics to the meekness of Christ. Let's take about five more minutes through our study. Go to First Peter 2. Let's take, this, is a worth, this is a worthy five minutes. We're going to wrap it up. Go to 1 Peter 2. I want you to look at this. What is What constitutes the meekness of Christ, right? Look at 1 Peter 2. Let's turn there. 1 Peter 2. I had some readers from up front. My sister, you raised your hand a little while back. Are you okay reading 1 Peter 2 for us? Okay, good. We're going to read 1 Peter 2. Please turn there as we listen to our sister. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 24. I want you to see what does the meekness of Christ look like? Because he says, I want you to study this. So let's take a look. Go ahead. Yep. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 24. Amen. 
Now, I want you to notice, it starts out by talking about what is thankworthy. What he defines as thankworthy is when we suffer wrongfully, meaning I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm suffering for this. Can't stress this enough. Look back at verse 19. For this is thankworthy if for conscience toward God, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. I did nothing but right, but I'm suffering for it. God says, man, that's an opportunity to praise the Lord. God says that is thankworthy. And God says, and the reason why it's thankworthy is because you're entering into the sufferings of Christ. All Jesus ever did was right, but they persecuted and even killed him for it. Follow that? So now what God is doing is God is saying, okay, in like manner, if you're suffering like that, God says you need to praise God all day long. That's a good thing. But then he goes on and says this in verse 20. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? In other words, if you do wrong stuff, if you do silly stuff, and then if you suffer for it, that is not an opportunity to glory. That's not something to say, yep, I'm suffering all for the glory of God. It's like, no, you're not. You're suffering because you made very bad decisions. And now you're suffering for it. Okay. So if you're taking it patiently, that's good, but not praiseworthy. That's not the thankworthy that God is talking about. The thankworthiness comes from when you did everything right and now you're suffering for it. So what is meekness? Here's meekness right here. To patiently endure suffering wrongfully without allowing even one Christian principle to be compromised. That is meekness. So whenever you think about, because, you know, we always say the meekness of Christ, but we don't really like break it down. The meekness of Christ is when literally you're patiently enduring suffering wrongfully without allowing even one Christian principle to be compromised. You will not change just because you're suffering wrongfully. That's why you got these stories of like John Huss, William Tyndale. All these guys suffered wrongfully. John Huss was thoroughly betrayed. John Huss had every reason to be like, Lord, call down fire from heaven and destroy these wicked people that John Huss could have, he would have been righteous saying that, but not in the eyes of God. God says, no, I, now I'm going to test your character, John. These people have betrayed you. What are you going to do? And what does John do? John prays for them. John prays for them and reassures them of God's love towards them in spite of their sins. And he simply encourages them, turn away from your sins, follow God. He was tested. He endured patiently his wrongful suffering and he did not compromise his Christianity. He didn't say bleep, bleep, bleep and shout out a bunch of curse words. He didn't threaten, man, if I can get off this stake, I'll knock your teeth out. He didn't say anything like that. All, all he did, Lord, be merciful to these people. Like Stephen, you know, got totally betrayed and mishandled. Stones are hitting him. He could have said, Lord, may the fires of hell consume every person in my sight. But Stephen instead, he says, Lord, forgive them. You're talking about a converted man, a converted woman. How do these people do that? They were betrayed. They were done wrong in so many ways. They were suffering wrongfully, but they endured it. They endured it. And then they just patiently said, Lord, I commit this into your hands. I commit them into your hands. I am not to reserve hatred in my heart towards them. I just simply am going to trust you that judges righteously, that you will do what's right for them. 
My job is to pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. He said, I'm going to stick to my job. You do the judging. You're better at it. You take revenge. You're better at it. Are you following that? That's meekness. That's meekness. And this is what God says. I want you to learn this. I want you to learn this. Humility, I'm just going to let you know. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 is just talking about, you know, um, uh, not esteeming, esteeming others better than yourself. You know, having love for one another, esteeming others better than yourself. So when you look at this, what is humility or lowliness? It is to see and treat others as Jesus would, which is better than yourself, regardless of race, status, background or education. That's lowliness. Jesus says, study that because there will be times in your lives where you have a right the same way Jesus had a right. He had a right to stay in heaven. He could have said, you sinners made this mess. You clean it up. Jesus could have easily had said that you sinners made this mess. You clean it up. But that's not lowliness. Jesus says not. Nah. He says, I'll tell you what. I love you guys so much. I am willing to suffer your pain so you can have my pleasure. I'll take your sins so you can have my righteousness. I'll take your death so you could have my life. Jesus says that's 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 lowliness. Do you know if we had more of this attitude, we'd have less homelessness in the church. There's no way that some of us some of us got decent bank accounts. Let's just be real with it. Right. Some of us got some good money, drive good cars, everything else. No sin in any of that. If you want a nice car, get a nice car. You want to have a nice house, get a nice house. But the reality is, is how do you know that your brothers or sisters are striving and trying to get something even minutely close to what you have, and you might have the power to help them. God says, well, why don't you help them? Do what you can. Make sure, like in the book of Acts chapter two and chapter four, make sure that all men have all things in common. Do you know if we had more of that mindset? We see far less financial sufferings in the church. And again, I'm not here to endorse foul behavior. Some people need financial education. Some people are wasteful, okay? There is something called the worthy poor. And that means there must be something called an unworthy poor. The worthy poor is you do, you're doing everything right and you are just down and out and you just simply need some help. Worthy poor people should be well supported. Individuals who could be better off, but simply are not because they keep making terrible, horrible decisions. Even the Bible says if a man don't work, he shouldn't eat. You follow that? So there's worthy poor and then there's unworthy poor. You got to know how to divide the line. But whatever we can do to help, humility, lowliness says, do what you can to help others. Do what you can. This is the meekness and lowliness of Christ. Why is it that this is important? And this is it. We're literally two minutes. We're closing. The foundation of all demonstrations of true humility comes down to this. Implicit belief in God's word is true humility, true self-surrender. True humility is the mind of Christ. Jesus said in John 5 and verse 30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, so I do. Jesus relinquished every right to the Father. Father, whatever you want is what I'm doing. Whatever you don't want is what I'm not doing. That's humility. Humility is not how much you can bend your back. You meet people all the time. You know, if a guy comes to you, Hi, how are you? It's good to see you. You guys doing good today? You know, we say this is humility. Yeah, that brother's humble, man. He don't even stand straight. He's always been, hey, how you doing? You doing okay? Hey, friend. And we say that's humility. You could be as absolute uh, arrogant as anything and bend your back. 
You could be arrogant with a soft voice. Hi, you doing okay? Hey, friends. We say, oh, that's a humble guy. Look how soft he talks. But next thing you know, get him upset. Look, I don't like that. And all of a sudden, their voice raises. It's not humility. Humility is not a body posture. Humility is not a tone of voice. Humility is implicit belief in Christ's words. When God says, go and be nice to that person and everything in you wants to take revenge on that person. And you and I say, Lord, I don't want to do this, but because your word says it, I will submit and I trust your power to help me accomplish what I know I can't accomplish. And you go to that person. Hey, can I talk to you for a second? And the person's like, what? And then you talk to them and you're like, listen, I think we should try to make peace, man. We've been at war with each other. I don't think God wants this for us. Let's see if we can work things out. And you're just trying, even though your mind is saying, I don't want to do this. I want to absolutely let in on this person. But you're humbling yourself to the word of God and you're doing what God says. And the next thing you know, when the person says, you know what? I realize I've been a pretty mean guy. I understand that I'm not right. I understand I have problems. I really need to change. And all of a sudden you hear this person say all these things. And guess what happens? joyful feeling and the blessing comes because you obeyed what the word of God said, even though you didn't feel it. And now you're happy and they're happy and relationships are reconciled. You cannot go wrong doing it God's way. This must cover every dynamic of your life. I'm not going to, we're not going to go through these, but this is biblical examples of humility. All right. Full submission to God's word, accepting correction without retaliation. Making wrongs right, regardless of the cost. Sometimes you might have to acknowledge what you did wrong, and it might cost you something. You might lose something. You might lose a person, a place, or a thing. You might suffer for doing the right thing. But there's no losses with the children of God. All things work together for our good. Because we love the Lord and we are called according to his purpose. Amen. Let us remember this quote and we're done. True humility is evidence that we behold God and that we are in union with Jesus Christ. Unless we are meek and lowly, we cannot claim that we have any true conception of the character of God. Men may think that they are serving God faithfully. Their talents, learning, eloquence, or zeal may dazzle the eye like Isaiah's did. Delight the fancy and awaken the admiration of those who cannot see beneath the surface. But unless these qualifications are humbly consecrated to God, unless those to whom these gifts are entrusted seek that grace which alone can make their work acceptable, they are regarded by God as unprofitable servants. Men will praise us even in our unconverted conditions. Men will praise us. But what's most important is that God can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of thy salvation. That's what counts more than anything else. And I've lost my passion for the praise of men. I used to be in entertainment. And that's all I lived for was the praises of men. I used to be a dancer and choreographer in the hip hop industry. That's all I wanted was the praises of men. But when God brought me into this message, God cured me from that sick way of thinking. And God has gotten me to a place to love people enough to tell them the truth. Tell the truth in love. I mean, we shouldn't be mean. We shouldn't be ungodly. And even in our rebukes, it should still have some area of, of, of uplifting. You know what I'm saying? To say, no, we can do this. Let's do this. Let's do this together. You know? But the key is, is that God is putting me through a tremendous conversion experience. And I'm very grateful for it. And I want you to join me on it. 
I really want to encourage you to join me on it. The same way that when somebody sees a sale on shoes and they tell the ladies about it, you know, lady, girl, there's a sale on them shoes. You got to come, you know, whatever. The same way we know about good things, good deals, right? We tell people, I'm, I found the pearl. I found the best deal in the world. I have found, I have discovered that the more that we seek out the meekness and lowliness of Jesus, the more that we are willing to behold him and study those specifics about his character, it has an impact that will wake us up like Isaiah was woken up. And this is especially done when we, when we behold Christ in the sanctuary. That's why God gave us a sanctuary message. The more you and I study that beautiful sanctuary and we study our beloved Savior, who's the lamb that died for us, the priest that lives for us, and the judge that judges righteously on our behalf. I mean, when you go through that courtyard, holy place, most holy place experience, and you look at Jesus in every phase of it and see what he's doing for us, even though we don't deserve it. I guarantee you, you meditate on that long enough. It's going to change your life. And you know why I know that? As the student of the Bible beholds the Redeemer, there is awakened in the soul the mysterious power of faith, adoration, and love. Upon the vision of Christ, the gaze is fixed, and the beholder grows into the likeness of that which he adores. That's God's promise to you. Be intentional about beholding him, and especially his meekness, and his lowliness. This is what will strip away our natural self-exaltation, our natural building up and lifting up ourselves, and it'll help us to be more humble at the foot of the cross and let God's will be done rather than our own. Question, how many of us understood our study today? Did you understand the study today? Is it your heart's desire to say, Lord, I'm going to make a covenant today that by your grace, I'm going to behold you, especially your meekness and your lowliness with the trust and hope that this will help me to become the man, the woman, the young boy, a young girl that God has called me to be. If you're willing to make that covenant, would you stand to your feet with me? I want to pray for you. I have no doubt that God is going to bless you beyond your expectations. And the best news in the world is he'll do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We'll give him all the praise and glory for it. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for your words. Thank you again for the beautiful truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will continue to reveal your son to us, that we might behold his meekness and lowliness and that it will have a transforming effect upon our hearts. Help us, Lord, to realize the privilege of morning worship and and morning manna, getting time to just spend with you. And I realize, yes, we won't feel it, but you never asked us to. You said joyful feeling and the blessings are yours to give to us. You simply want us to know what is right and then to do it. And I pray that you will help, especially my young brothers and sisters caught in so many traps of the enemy, so many distractions. Lord, I pray that you might help them to fight a little harder in the strength of God and may they be found overcomers. But I pray this also for my adult brothers and sisters as well, for sometimes we get fixed in our ways. Help us, Lord, also to again demonstrate the humility of Christ, implicit belief in your word, and that whatever you tell us to do, we will do it. And may we find ourselves better equipped, like Isaiah, after having received the vision to go and make more disciples. Keep us faithful to this end, we pray, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. 
Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.